Good morning. So there's a song that I have heard several times, and I don't know how I am as familiar with it as I am, because it is an old song, and it is a country song. So it's an old song in the sense that I think it came out <clears throat> uh, back before like I listened to popular music, and it's a country song, which is a genre of music that I haven't been like a giant fan of for most of my life, and so um, I, I don't know how I know the song so much, but I think it must be something like maybe it just made its way into the department store rotation where, you know, you're just shopping and getting groceries or getting whatever, buying clothes, and you just hear that music that's over the speaker. But anyway, the name of the song is Heads Carolina, Tails California. Have you heard it? Yeah, you love that song, apparently. Okay. No one went, oh, yeah. Okay, so it, it's a fun song, and um, it's by Jody Messina, and I'm going to read you some of the lyrics of the song. It says, We can load what we own in the back of a U-Haul van, a couple of modern-day Moseses searching for the promised land. We can go 400 miles before we stop for gas. Hey, we'll drive for a day, and then we'll look at the map, which is an important part of the song. She is willing to drive for an entire day, and then look at the map. Why in the world would you look at the map after you've already driven for a day? And the chorus explains it. Heads, Carolina. Tails, California. Somewhere greener, somewhere warmer, up in the mountains, down by the ocean, where don't matter, long as we're going, somewhere together. I got a quarter. Heads, Carolina. Tails, California. And it is a love song, right? It's this woman singing to her lover saying, let's move to wherever, as long as we're together, it doesn't matter. It can be Carolina, it can be California, it doesn't really matter. As long as we're together, that's what matters. And that's the reason why we can just flip a coin. We can flip a coin because it doesn't matter where we end up, as long as we're together. That's why we can drive for a whole day and then look at the map, because it doesn't matter where we go as long as we're together, which is sweet, isn't it? <clears throat> and I think that there are certain decisions in life that can be like that, that you, just, you can just flip a coin because it doesn't matter which one you do. Right? If you're trying to decide what kind of toothpaste you want, right, and it's Crest or Colgate, and they're the same price, and they have all the same features, you can flip a quarter. Right? It doesn't really matter. And I also think there are certain things that you can do without planning ahead. You just get in the car, and you go, and you figure it out when you get there. Um, my wife and I, back before we had kids, we used to handle vacations that way. There were multiple times that we would go on vacation, and no reservations. We would just get in the car. We set up some time, and we would just go somewhere. All right, and just figure it out. No, we'd figure out where we're going to stay. When we went there, I remember we lived in Dallas at the time. We did one, went down to San Antonio that way. We went up to Hot Springs, Arkansas one time. We drove over to North Carolina one time. No, don't know where we're going to stay. We just get there, figure it out, do whatever we do once we get there. It was awesome. Now, we don't do it anymore because i got kids now. <laughs> uh, so there's five of us. I have three children, and so there's no way I am going to risk going to a town where the only option is like a hotel with one bedroom and one queen bed for the five of us. Like, no, so we are reservations family now. But there are times where it's appropriate to just figure it out along the way, all right? And this is the thing I want you to understand about that. While that is true, I want you to know that that only works when the destination doesn't matter, okay? The song is correct. Like she says, where don't matter as long as we're going somewhere together. As long as where don't matter, then you can flip a coin. However, in the cases where the destination does matter, in the situations where there is a particular finish line to cross, in the cases where there is a specific mission that must be accomplished, in those cases, the individual decisions to get there certainly matter. The idea that, well, we'll just go and do we turn left, do we turn right, ah, we'll flip a quarter. No, if the destination matters, we do not flip a quarter. That decision matters. 
Every decision along the way matters if the destination matters, and that's the idea behind this new series, Intentional. If God has a particular mission for his church, then the decisions that Christians make matter greatly. You see, if as a church, if it were true that where we are headed doesn't matter so long as we get somewhere together, then there are so many decisions we could just flip a coin on, right? Should we all meet together in community groups? Or instead, should we do a Sunday school program? Or should we do both? Or should we do neither? Should we just gather together as big church? What decisions should we make? We could flip a coin if it doesn't matter where we end up so long as we're just all there together. However, if it is true that we must love God, love each other, love people who don't know God yet, and if it's true that the Bible has some particulars about how to get there, then it is also true that we must be intentional. Now, you may be wondering, wait a minute, I thought we were getting back to Proverbs. Weren't we teaching through Proverbs, and then you did like this little Easter series, and weren't we getting back to Proverbs? And so I will let you know, yes, if the Lord wills, that is my plan. After this series, I'd like to pick up right where we left off in Proverbs. However, we have a ton of new people here, new people who just began attending this past year, and I think there are just some basic things about the mission of our church that I believe we should say now. Also, it has been over a year since I have last addressed these issues, and during that year, like in, the, in that time since I last addressed this, a pandemic happened that was a little distracting. Um, and so even those of you who have been attending here for a long time, I think that you could use a reminder. So for those of you who are long-termers, this is a reminder, and for those of you who are coming new, I want to explain to you about the mission of our church. And so our plan is to cover intentional worship, intentional community, Intentional discipleship, intentional ministry, and intentional evangelism. These five topics were greatly popularized by Rick Warren in his books, Purpose Driven Church and Purpose Driven Life. And I believe they are five things that God has called his people to. We are to worship, we are to evangelize, we are to minister, we are to care for others. And so let me go ahead, and today we're going to do intentional worship, and I'm just going to pray before we really jump in. God, I ask that this would be a fiery sermon. And I don't necessarily mean in the way that I deliver it. I pray that it would be fiery in the way that we hear it. I pray that your spirit would work among us, that your fire would fall among us in our hearts and in our minds and accomplish your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, this morning I would like to answer three questions about the topic of worship. I want to answer how do you worship God, where do you worship God, and why do you worship God, okay? How do you worship God, where do you worship God, and why do you worship God? And we're going to start with how do you worship God. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I think is probably the best verse in all of Scripture when it comes to succinctly explaining what worship is is. Okay, if you just want one verse in the Bible where like it's just a sentence that kind of defines what worship is, I think this is probably your best verse to go to in the entire Bible. Here it is, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Right? So explain something, and then it says, after the something, this is your spiritual worship, or that could be translated your reasonable service. 
the reasonable service that you owe to God, the spiritual worship that you are to give to God is what this verse says. Well, what is it? So let's start with the first word, therefore. Therefore is a connector word. Nobody ever says the word therefore unless they've said some words before it, right? Right? No one's ever come up to you if they haven't talked to you all day and they go, therefore, let's go to the mall, right? (laughs) You say therefore to refer to what you had just been saying. So the context here when he says, like in light of what was said, now this, and I don't know how far back to go. Because in one sense, I mean, you could say that Romans chapters 1 through 11 is like one of the most incredible gospel presentations in the entire Bible. I mean, just going back and looking at it, starting in chapter 1, it talks about God's judgment on people who have rejected him. It talks about how people are accountable before him, that no one is righteous and that no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law that they do. Um, but then there is a righteousness that now has been revealed and it's in, through faith in Jesus Christ that he has turned away God's wrath, and that we are saved, and we are saved not by our works, but through faith, and we were saved by grace. And he talks about Adam and people's sin, and then Jesus coming along, and um, the way that we live our lives. There is no, this is now I'm at chapter 8 now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that, that God is merciful, and he saves people. By chapter 9, it says he shows mercy to those he wants to, he hardens those he wants to harden. You get to chapter 10, he says, um, if, the, uh, if you confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe with your, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he talks about Israel and their salvation. And then you get to chapter 12, and so you have all of this, like you have the gospel being proclaimed. And then the three verses that are just before chapter 12 say this. They say, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has ever been his counselor, or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? These are rhetorical questions, no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then it says, therefore. Okay? Can we have our therefore back up there? So whether we're looking at the immediate context, like the verses just before it, which would be saying, because of the greatness of God, therefore, or whether we're factoring in maybe the whole 11 chapters that came before this, because of the grace of God and the gospel of God, but either way you look at it, because of the graciousness and the gospel of God or the greatness of God, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, this is what you do. And so we already have a big hint as to why we worship. I'll get to that later in the sermon. But the why is connected to, oh, God is so good and so great and so gracious and so powerful and so amazing. Therefore, therefore what? What's the how? How do you worship? Here's how you do it, brothers. By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I think that little phrase probably made way more sense to the original audience than it does to us because they were, more, uh, um, they were more familiar with the idea of presenting a body as a sacrifice. We don't do a lot of sacrifices in our culture. So I think that they would understand this. The idea that you would give a body, typically the body of an animal, as a sacrifice to a deity, that would be something that I think their culture would have been very familiar with. If you were a Jewish person back then, you were familiar with this because of the Old Testament and the Old Testament system and what your people had done for a long time, that there would be a time where a sheep or a goat or a bull would be given for a sacrifice so that God would forgive them of their sins or for whatever the instructions happened to be for that particular sacrifice. And if you were not Jewish, if you were a pagan, I think you understood this idea of offering an animal body on some sort of altar in some sort of way for the, as an offering to a deity. The reason I assume that is if you look in the Bible, um, in New Testament particularly, there are these times where they talk about what to do with meat that has been offered to 
idols, not meat that has been offered to the true God, but meat that's been offered to idols. So as best as I understand it, even pagans, even people who did not believe in the God of the Bible, they understood the idea of bringing an animal and offering it to a God as a sacrifice. So he's talking into this culture and he says, you want to worship? This is what you need to do. I urge you to present, now this is weird, your bodies as a living sacrifice. Instead of putting a goat up there, instead of a sheep, instead of a bull, you offer you, put your body as the offering that you give to God. And in case anybody would take that like super literally, like a suicide sort of thing, like a get on up on an altar and set myself on fire sort of thing, thankfully, he includes this word here, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give your body to God, not your dead body to God. Give your alive body to God as an offering. So how do you worship God? By giving Him you. Worship is not just a service that you attend. It is not just the singing portion of the service. It is not a style of music. Worship is not what you do, like simply what you do in this room from 9.15 to 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Worship is supposed to be the life of a believer honoring God with their body every day. All right, number two, where do you worship? Where is the place of worship? And I think that prior to learning Romans 12, 1, it would have been very tempting to say church, okay? Where do you worship God? Well, we worship God at church, right? That's the place of worship, church. But as soon as you realize that worship is the offering of your body to God, you start to wonder, well, is that, a, is that like a one hour a week thing? That almost doesn't seem to fit with Romans 12, 1. Where is the place of worship? And I think the average American Christian, the knee-jerk reaction would be to say at church. But let me go ahead and tell you what I think the answer is. Well, first, let's get there in a, in a fun way. Uh, John chapter 4. I want you to see what Jesus says about worship. Jesus has a conversation with this woman that we know of as the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. We call her that because she was Samaritan and she was standing next to a well when Jesus met her, and we don't know her real name. So that's how, that's how she went down in history. Jesus has an extended conversation with her about multiple things, and a lot happens in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. <clears throat> I'm not going to teach the whole story. There's a lot in here. If someone were teaching on this story or different parts of it, there's a lot that you could say. You could preach on John chapter 4, and you could talk about Jesus' messiahship because of what he says in verse 26. You could preach on John chapter 4, and you could do a sermon on racism because of what, what is said in verse 9. You could preach on John chapter 4, and you could do a sermon on evangelism because of what is said between verses 35 and 42. But for this particular sermon, I just want to focus on the part of the conversation that's about worship. So I'm just letting you know, I'm, reading, I'm going to read to you a piece of a larger conversation, and I'm just reading the part of the conversation that was about worship. He's talking to this woman, and what happens just before this part, just so you know, is Jesus tells her about her backstory in such a way that she realizes something supernatural is going on, that he has just met her, and yet he knows things about her that you shouldn't know if you just met someone. So she is able to see that he is a prophet, and that's what she says. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. And then she says this, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. So this woman, as soon as she finds out she's talking to a prophet, the first topic that she brings up is worship. And in fact, not just worship, the first topic she brings up is the place of worship. Where is worship supposed to happen? 
He, she says, I see you're a prophet. And then what she says is, okay, here's the thing. You're a Jew, so your parents probably taught you that the holy place of worship is Jerusalem. But I'm a Samaritan, and my parents taught me that the holy place is this mountain. Right? So we got two different, we got two different wares to worship. And what does Jesus say? Look what he says in verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So she brings up the place of worship, two different options. Is it where your people say or my people say? Is it Jerusalem or is it this mountain? And his first answer seems to be neither. At least he says there is a time coming when the answer will be neither. Then he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because of sa the salvation is from the Jews. So it seems like he's saying it's about to be neither, but he also says the Jews, the, the salvation comes from them and they are actually worshiping who they know, you don't. And so that may very well be his way of saying, technically the correct answer is Jerusalem, like at this moment. However, I don't know that that's super important because look what he says next. He's, so he's saying it's about to be neither, I think maybe he believes technically the answer is Jerusalem, though. And then he says this in verse 23, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. Where? In spirit and truth. That's not a place. Let's keep going. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She brings up the where of worship he starts off by seeming to say it's about to be neither. Then he talks about how the Samaritans do not worship what they, they do not, they worship what they do not know. And then he says to the woman, there is a time coming. It is right around the corner. It is so right around the corner that it's like here. Where you will worship, and then this is interesting, he doesn't give a place. No, this doesn't answer the question of where worship, but I just want you to notice that when where worship comes up, Jesus is, when he responds, his focus is not on a holy place, but on a holy people. He's not focused on where, he's focused on who. That's a huge hint. I believe that we need to have a proper theology of worship and worship places and church buildings. This is important for us. It is important for like, us to understand it for ourselves. It is important for us to understand it for the sake of future generations who will take their spiritual cues from us. When I was a youth minister back at a previous church, I, there was one day that I was standing there. It was, I believe we were outside the youth building, which the youth building was the old sanctuary. So there was this, the building that was there made of, I think, bricks. And um, so there's the, there's the church building, and then we were outside on this, you know, big, beautiful church campus. And one of the teenagers, I think she was a high school student, I think her name was Sherry, she came up to me, and she said, Mario, what do churches do to make their, properties, to make their property holy? And I think I, I think I may have said, like, what do you mean? And I think she may have said something like, you know, when a Walmart comes to town, they buy a piece of land, and they cut down the trees, and they bulldoze, and they put a Walmart there. But like when a church comes to an area, what do they do to make their property holy? I think she might have even said, like, do you pour holy water down on the ground? Like, what do you do to make the property holy? And there's a little part of me sometimes in my personality that would just like to answer that question. Like, you know, like the prankster part of me, because she's going to believe whatever I say next. <laughs> and so there's a little part of me that wants to go, you wouldn't believe what we've got to do. 
we've got to import water from the Jordan River and get feathers from a bald eagle and seven pastors from seven different denominations each offer a prayer, and it is a process, right? Um, that, but that would have been bad for her, and I did not do that. Um, I gave her the honest, boring answer. I said, nothing. She said, what do, you, what do we do to make the property holy? I said, nothing. I think I said something like this. The, the dirt here is just dirt. And I think I might have even referred to the building. I said, you know, the, that building is just bricks stacked on top of bricks. I, th- I think I said something like that. I believed that back then, and I believe that now. It's just bricks stacked on top of bricks, on top of dirt. That's just dirt. This building that we're in right now, I believe, is made of steel fastened to other pieces of steel. And that building over there is concrete blocks that are stacked on top of concrete blocks. And it's great steel, and they're great concrete blocks, okay, that we use for worship and for evangelism and for teaching and for discipleship. But it's just steel and concrete blocks on dirt. And one day, if Jesus does not return first, these buildings will get torn down, like all buildings eventually do. And the kingdom of God will continue to go forward because it was never about the buildings and the properties to begin with. And we still haven't answered the question, where do you worship? It may surprise you to know, when people say things like, you must worship in the house of God, or worship must take place in the sanctuary of God, those people are technically right. We just need a New Testament definition of sanctuary of God or house of God. So let me go ahead and show this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he says this in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? He's talking to these Christians, and he said, Did you know this? Did you know that, there, that the sanctuary of God is you? You're going, where's the temple? Where's the place that God, like, he shows up? Where's the place he lives, right? Where's his sanctuary that he lives? Paul says, don't you know it's you? You are God's sanctuary. The Spirit lives in you. Well, does he, could he, does he really mean that? Well, I, I think he does because he says it again one page later. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, don't you know that your, what's the word? Body, good, good. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God where? In your body. I'm supposed to glorify God in my body. Why? Because my body doesn't belong to me, the verse says. He came and bought it. It's not my body. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. He bought my body, and my body is his temple. My body is his sanctuary. That's where he lives. That's that's the sanctuary. Don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And that's interesting, because the idea that God lives in our body, that that's the place of worship, matches pretty good with Romans 12.1, when it says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. So when you look at these, you see, okay, so Paul said, you are the sanctuary of God. God's spirit lives in you. Your body is the sanctuary of God. It's not your own. And your body is the thing that you are to present to God. So God's sanctuary is your body. It turns out God did buy a house. It's us. Why is that important? 
because Christians accidentally teach the opposite of this all the time. When I was a little boy, I think I was 10 or 11 years old, I'm pretty sure my dad had passed away at this point, and I, he died when I was nine, so probably when I was 10 or 11 or something like that. I was going to church with just my mom, and I think this was the, my church had Sunday school, and it was Sunday school, there was kids Sunday school and adult Sunday school. And mom went to adult Sunday school, and I went to kids Sunday school, and I think maybe on this particular occasion, um, kids Sunday school got out first. And so I'm just waiting in the hallway for mom to get out of adult Sunday school. And the way I was waiting in the hallway, I need a wall for this, I was leaning against the wall, waiting for whatever was next. My sh I think my shoulders were leaning against the wall, I had one foot on the ground, and I had one foot up like this. I don't know if you can see it way over there, but anyway, I had one foot touching the wall like this, one foot on the ground, and I was waiting. Because we're going to go to the worship service, I'm waiting for my mom to get out of Sunday school. And there was an elder of the church that walked by. He was the elder in charge of Sunday school. And he said to me, do you put your foot on the wall like that at your house? And I think I said something to him like, yes, sir. <laughs> because I did. Like, I grew up in a house where my mom didn't care about that. Maybe because of, I don't know, the decor at the time, wood paneling. Ugh. Anyway, um, my, my, I'm not sure what it was, but my mom didn't have a rule about no feet on the walls. That, so it just it would not have dawned on me to do anything special. Like, don't make sure your feet don't touch the wall. It wouldn't have crossed my mind. So I'm sitting there, and he says, do you put your feet on the wall like that at your house? And I said something like, yes. And he said, well, this isn't your house. This is God's house, right? Put your foot on the ground. And so I did. And he walked away, and I bet he walked away thinking he did something very good, right? I mean, that man just solved a problem, didn't he? And I mean, then there might be a few of you here that are like, yeah, feet shouldn't be on the walls. He did solve a problem. Well, good. You keep believing that. Um, that's, that. That's not my point. I don't care what you believe about feet on walls. My point is, when you tell a 10 or 11-year-old boy, hey, well, that's your house. This is God's house. That teaches that 11-year-old boy something, doesn't it? It teaches him something about worship and places of worship. I think it teaches him, I mean, I think the assumption is that God cares more about these walls than he does the walls at my house. These are special walls, holy walls. This is a special Jesus wall. And at your home, that's just like a regular wall that doesn't matter. Isn't that what it communicates? And what you do with these walls and what you do here, like, whoo, that's important. What you do at your house, well, who cares, right? Because this is God's house, and that's just your house. But the problem is, guess what? Your house is God's house. Did you know that? God owns your house. God owns this building. This is God's house. God owns this building. And God owns your house, and God owns my house. God owns all the buildings. He owns all the Publixes. He owns all the Walmarts. God owns everything, and when I say holy, when I say there's like a holy place, um, I'm saying, what I'm saying by that is I mean set apart as special for the Lord. Spiritually set apart as special for the Lord, as holy. And I guess there is a sense in which technically this building is holy like that. It is set apart as special for the Lord's use. But your house should be holy like that too. And your car should be holy like that too. Set apart for the Lord's use. And it is your body that the scripture specifically says is his sanctuary that he lives in. And this idea that it matters what you do here, but not as much what you do out there. Is that even true? No. And yet nearly every single one of you in this room has heard somebody say something silly based on that belief. Here's a big one. Sometimes, many of you have been in a church building before, and there are multiple people in the room, and somebody says something that's false. 
and somebody else goes, oh, you just told a lie in church. You know what I'm talking about? Where does that come from? Like God is super concerned about where we lie, right? He's looking down and going, look, that person told, wait a minute. No, they were in the parking lot. They started the sentence in the lobby, but they were in the parking lot by the time they finished it. That's a parking lot lie. No big. Angels, go find me someone that lied like in a church building, please. That's who we smite, right? Do we believe that? Is that how we think it works? That around this county, there are a few buildings and they're like they're, they're special dishonesty-free zones? Listen to me, Christian. You are supposed to be a dishonesty-free zone, right? Because it's your body that he dwells in. So we should change the phrase to, ooh, you just told a lie in your body. <laughs> because you honor God in your body and you take that thing with you everywhere you go. Worship does not begin when you walk into the church building and then end when you walk out of it. Worship begins the moment you become a Christian and it never ends. Isn't that good to know? Jesus seems to me to be more interested in a holy people than a holy place. And I can tell you for sure, Jesus did not shed his blood on the cross to make buildings holy. He shed his blood on the cross to make people like me and you holy. And so if all of that is true, then we cannot live our lives making decisions by flipping coins. Our lives must be intentional, as our worship must be intentional. Final question, why? So we've said, how do we worship where do we worship God? Why do we worship God? We worship God because he is worthy of it. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your worship. We worship God because of who he is. We worship him because he has done what he has done. He's the creator of the whole world. Why do you worship God? He's the reason you exist right now. He is the sustainer of all things. He's the reason you just took the most recent breath you took. And the one you took after I said that. And every breath you will take until the day you die. He's in charge of everything. And then when you think about what Jesus has done for us, just think about what we focused on these past four weeks, for those of you that have been here. Life, death, resurrection, ascension. Do you remember that series? That Jesus Christ lived a life on our behalf, that he would come down here, leaving, leaving the glory of heaven in order to be one of us, and then lived a perfect life so he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice so that we could be redeemed, that he died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he bore in his body our sins so that you could be forgiven and then give him your body, that he rose again from the grave conquering death, and has ascended to heaven, where he is reigning right now, where he is interceding on our behalf right now, and will come again to restore all things. That is almost unfathomable. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this truth. I 
thank you that you do not live in shrines made by human hands, but that you would choose to make us the place that you live. That's incredible. We thank you, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would make us good worshipers of you. I think we are good worshipers, period. Like we, like we, we, we worship. We ascribe value and spend time and money and energy and affection valuing something. And I pray that you would make us good worshipers of you. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.